Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. How do you really know who controls a city or a country? Let's say you're watching events unfold in the political sphere, a law gets passed, or a person gets elected, or a war gets fought. You know, speeches are made, reasons are given, votes are taken. But as a citizen, do you ever get the suspicion that what you're looking at is sort of like actors playing out a story on a stage? While well, the director, or the screenwriter, or whoever it is that's actually in control of what's happening, somewhere else, unseen. I think Rome felt like that sometimes, too even for people with front row seats or people on stage themselves. One day, the orator Cicero bought a house. It was a beautiful mansion on the Palatine Hill, just a short walk from the Forum. Cicero was moving up in the world. He just had a successful year as consul of Rome. And this is fast-forwarding a few years in Crassus' story, but it illustrates a point. So Cicero has dreamed of owning this house in particular one day, and he used to talk about it. So to celebrate, he wrote a letter to a friend, and he was giving his friend some details about the purchase. And Cicero revealed that he paid 3.5 million sesterces for his new place, which is a lot of money, but Cicero thought it was still quite a deal. And yet even a former consul doesn't necessarily have that kind of cash lying around. So to pay for it, Cicero took out some loans. But with his strong name backing the loan, Cicero was paying only 6% annual interest, which was quite low by Roman standards. And one of the owners, in all likelihood, of at least some of Cicero's debt was the seller of the house. And that seller who gave his good friend Cicero such a good deal was Marcus Crassus. Debt was a sensitive subject in those days in Rome. In fact, the crowning achievement of Cicero's recent consulship was that he unearthed and stopped a revolutionary conspiracy whose leader, Catiline, was promising to overthrow the Roman nobility in order to issue a widespread cancellation of debts. Catiline attracted a large following specifically for that reason. Debt was a problem for people ranging from the poorer classes all the way up to some of the most noble households of Rome. And in his letter to his friend, Cicero jokes, take notice that I am now so deeply in debt that I would be glad to join a conspiracy, but none of them will take me. Catiline was dead now, together with his widespread hopes of debt cancellation. One of Catiline's biggest debt holders and political patrons had been Crassus. And Cicero was convinced, but he didn't dare talk about this in public, that the great moneylender Crassus himself had been involved in organizing Catiline's debt cancellation conspiracy. Well, on top of that, a few years later, Cicero found himself driven into exile by one of his personal enemies, who was a suave young demagogue who was starting to take control of the streets of an increasingly lawless Rome. 
This was a young demagogue whose career had once been saved from the brink of destruction by hefty bribes from Crassus. And while Cicero was away, this young protege of Crassus, his name was Clodius, he organized a mob and burned to the ground that same beautiful house that Crassus once sold Cicero. Where could a guy like Cicero even set his foot in Rome without tripping over some string that Crassus had tied to a politician or a property or a policy, one of the many strings that he used to control the city of Rome? Behind almost all of the most interesting events and behind the most dangerous people in the Republic, if you looked closely, you'd probably see the looming shadow of Crassus. And that would include the career of the man that some would call the most dangerous of them all. Julius Caesar. So how did he do it? And what lessons can we learn from what he did? And what did he mean to do with that kind of power? Well, let's get on with the story. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes and anti-heroes, following the lead of the ancient Greek philosopher-biographer Plutarch, the author of The Parallel Lives, the world's most influential biography collection ever. And this is part two of three of the life of Crassus. Before we get into the meat of it, though, a brief word from our sponsor, before Julius Caesar overthrew the Republican government in a great civil war that started in 49 BC, many Romans thought that Crassus did it first, but by somewhat more peaceful means. All this, though, was hard to foresee back in 70. That's when we left Crassus in the last episode. In 70, Crassus and Pompey were just two great up-and-coming politicians who happened to both win the consulship together in the same year by supporting each other's candidacy. They were also, of course, arch-rivals. And this whole year, this whole time, even while they're cooperating, they're both thinking, how can I end up with the upper hand of this situation? That's the kind of men they were. But for now, they have some big plans to work together on. And these plans are going to have bigger implications than they could ever possibly imagine. Now, Crassus is 43 or 44 right now, and that is not that young for a consul. And that's one of the interesting things about Crassus that you see in many great figures like King Agesilaus of Sparta too that we've done on this podcast. Well, Crassus had the most success and prominence and influence in his later life. Pompey, though, is just 35 when he gets elected. And this is striking because you might remember both he and Crassus were protégés of that conservative dictator, Sulla. And Sulla had laid down quite unambiguous rules about the mandatory minimum ages that Roman politicians should be at in order to enter each high office stage. You were supposed to be at least 40 to become consul. So in a way, Crassus's gray hairs give young Pompey a patina of traditional respectability to counterbalance this blatant flouting of the rules here. And that's a theme, too, of Crassus's life, that he works very effectively with younger men. Now, doing this was disrespectful to Sulla's memory, no doubt, but they were going to do something that could make the dead dictator claw himself out of the grave howling. Now, Sulla as dictator instituted a really bold innovation. He tried to turn back the Roman constitutional clock hundreds of years in one key spot, 
he stripped the office of the Tribune of the Plebs of its long-standing right to pass laws through the use of popular plebiscite votes. You remember they were supposed to consult the Senate's advice, these tribunes, but they didn't technically have to. And Sulla, I think rightly, saw that this office and this power in particular of the office was a doorway to abuses. It was a way of rewriting the rules without reference to the Republic's hallowed institutions or its wise councils in the form of the Senate. That was how Marius stole the Mithridates command from Sulla, after all. That's what provoked the first civil war, you could argue. And Sulla also made it a rule, importantly, that anyone who held the tribune's office could not run for any higher offices for the rest of their career. This effectively strips the tribune office of both its most important power and its most important talent pool, which was ambitious young politicians looking to make a name for themselves with bold policies. And these moves were welcomed by the conservatives. Their main agenda in this period is to uphold the dignity and the prerogatives of the Senate, to make sure that its traditional preeminence is respected and the tribunes were known for working against that. Well, Pompey decided to run for the consulship on the campaign promise of restoring the former dignity and powers of the tribunate. And Crassus supported him. So that's what they do. It's one of their first acts in office as consuls. They restore the tribunate. They give the power back to the people. And this measure wins them some instant popularity, but that's not why they did it. They each have bigger schemes for Roman politics that may require, someday, exceptions to the rules. And they're imagining that they're going to like having a restored tribunate to push their will through, perhaps over potential conservative obstructionism. Then you can just hear Sulla crying from beyond, you fools. Well, it's clear by this point that Crassus is no conservative like his father. But then some of his policies suggest that he's not a radical or a populist either. As consul, Crassus restores an office that was defunct since Sulla's reign. This is the office of censor. It's a senior magistracy for two men, the most senior office of all of them, and it's only open to former consuls. And its main duty is to conduct the Roman census every five years, but it's also a kind of moral arbiter, and they can kick people out of the Senate for bad behavior. Well, this restoration of the censorship makes Crassus seem like a champion of tradition. So he's really balancing out his image with different moves. And in another stroke of genius... For this restored office for the two men that are going to hold it first, Crassus makes sure that two particular men get picked as censors, the two consuls who Spartacus defeated in battle, who Crassus then put to shame when he replaced them and won that war. So he wants to give these guys a chance to win some face back. And this is a move to dispel envy and win these men into his constituency. And I think this really shows Crassus's fine sensitivity for politics and relationships to promote somebody that you've outclassed rather than let them stew with resentment. Now, as consuls, even though Pompey and Crassus are cooperating in many ways, there was an air of tension. They are arch-rivals, after all. And towards the end of their term, it becomes known among the citizenry that there have been some verbal sparks flying between them. On the one hand, this sort of thing was reassuring to the embattled conservatives in the Senate. Competition and even quarreling between the consuls reflected that principle of the Roman constitution that no man should be allowed to become too great, to become anything like a king or a monarch. And that was the reason there are two consuls to keep a check on each other, to 
check one man's ambition by the other man's ambition. It's still this apparent quarreling, though. It's making the average citizens nervous, mindful of the horrors that the city survived just a few years ago. But then at one assembly, Pompey and Crassus are standing a few paces apart on the rostra, and Plutarch tells a story of what happened. Quote, A certain man, not a noble, but a Roman knight, rustic and rude in his way of life, so he already sounds like one of Crassus's guys here, Onatius Aurelius was his name. He mounted the rostra and recounted to the audience a vision that had come to him in his sleep. He said, Jupiter appeared to me and bade me declare in public that the Roman people should not allow their consuls to lay down their office until they become friends. And when this man said this and the people shouted and urged a reconciliation, Pompey, for his part, stood motionless. But Crassus took the initiative. He went and clasped Pompey by the hand and said, Fellow citizens, I think there's nothing humiliating or unworthy in my taking the first step towards goodwill and friendship with Pompey, to whom you gave the title of great before he had even grown a beard and voted him a triumph before he was a senator. End quote. And the crowd erupts and cheers, of course. And some historians think that this scene might have been staged by Crassus. And even though Crassus preferred to avoid the spotlight, you know, he was a consummate performer when he needed to be. I think people also tend to underestimate how wise Crassus was. So by this time, Crassus has recruited into his retinue a Greek, a guy named Alexander, who he consulted as a political advisor and probably as a teacher of his sons. Alexander was a devotee of the philosophy of the great Aristotle. Aristotle taught many things that were appealing to Crassus. Virtue, he held to be a mean or a middle way between two extremes, such as the virtue of courage. It's a mean between cowardice on the one hand and overboldness on the other hand. Unlike many philosophers, like the Stoics or the Epicureans, Aristotle could be interpreted to hold that some material prosperity was necessary for complete human happiness. You could call Aristotle's philosophy in many ways a philosophy of moderation, that suited a middle-of-the-road politician like Crassus. Aristotle also famously believed that man was a political animal who reached his fullest potential only by active participation in a city-state. And it's hard to imagine a more political animal than Crassus. Aristotle also taught that lending money at interest was unnatural and bad. But of course, there was no need to consider oneself beholden to any man's doctrine in its entirety, much less a Greek. Now, another strange thing about the consulship of Pompey and Crassus was the way that they ended it. Both Pompey and Crassus declined the opportunity to become governors of the provinces afterwards. The normal thing for Roman consuls and praetors was they would take out huge loans to pay for their candidacy, and if they were lucky enough to get elected, after their year of office, they would head out on a tour of duty to the provinces, which were filled with the many foreigners that Rome rules over now, and then they know, as a provincial governor, it's pretty easy to make back the cash that they owe the creditors. There's all kinds of ways. You start a war, you plunder, or you can speculate in various opportunities that your office affords you, or you could just extort the provincials through corruption and graft. But Rome's two leading men didn't need any cash. Pompey, because of all the booty that he won from his wars already in Spain and elsewhere, Crassus, because he's already got a vast real estate empire, he's also somehow got control of massive mining interests, probably through his connections in Spain. 
He's got investments in slaveholdings, provincial tax farming, money lending. In other words, Crassus is already Crassus by this point. He's Rome's richest man. He doesn't need to do anything like that. So instead, the two men decide to wait at home and bide their time for better opportunities to get an advantage one over the other. And this waiting game tended generally to play into Crassus's favor. Plutarch observes that, in general, Pompey's name and power were greater in the city when he was away from it, mostly because he drew so much of his repute from his military campaigns. That was his element. When he was at home, he was often less powerful than Crassus. Pompey was so towering and dignified a figure that other fellow citizens felt sometimes kind of awkward around him. This is especially true after his later campaigns in the East, when Pompey even gained a whiff of royalty about him. And in another life, he could have made a great king. But Pompey was anxious to keep this august sublimity in people's minds, the charisma of the conqueror. And so he preferred to shroud himself in a little bit of mystery and avoid being seen too much around town casually. But Crassus, Crassus was easy to find, smiling around the streets and public buildings with his unassuming charm, calling out people by name. So given the circumstances, Pompey gets restless, and he's eager to go off on another adventure. And in the year 67, he finds an occasion to excuse himself from the city for a long absence. Well, Rome has been facing a pirate problem in the seas for several decades. There's been a whole string of prominent men who failed to get these pirates under control. Part of the problem has been the Romans don't have a great way of organizing a navy, except as a kind of afterthought to a land army. It's basically just supply chain support. And land armies are generally tied to specific regional governorships, and governors of those land armies only have powers in their designated provinces like, you know, nearer Spain or Cisalpine Gaul. But these pirates are ranging all over the entire Mediterranean, and they have a network of bases, mainly in the east. They're very hard to dislodge. And so in 67, the pirates, with their advantage that they have over the Romans, they get so bold that they sail into Rome's port at Ostia, and they burn the ships right in the harbor. And in the panic that comes out of this, Pompey at last gets to enjoy that legislative battering ram that he and Crassus made ready during their consulship. A certain tribune of the plebs that year, named Gabinius, well, this guy understood his role very clearly. And Gabinius proposes an extraordinary rule. Really, it's a precedent-smashing measure. To be passed, of course, in a plebiscite. He proposes to award a single man command of the entire Mediterranean Sea, as well as all of the coastlines to around 50 miles inland, and also 200 ships, as much money as he needs, to finally eradicate the pirates from Mare Nostrum, from our sea. No Roman has ever been given a command like this. It has a three-year term limit, and for Republican years, anything over one year is extraordinary. And so this kind of sounds to the Romans like a stepping stone to monarchy. And, of course, no specific man was named, but no one doubted who the intended commander was. It was Pompey the Great. And this proposal is so controversial that a riot breaks out in the Senate House after a heated discussion, and a few people almost died. But 
Gabinius finally pushes this law through in a plebiscite over the fevered cries of conservatives lamenting the imminent death of the Republican Constitution. Well, Pompey takes up this command, and he completely secures the Sea of Pirates in only three months. You have to admit, the kid is good. And we'll give more details of that campaign in his biography. But then after this, the very next year, 66, another tribune of the plebs, who's eager to win Pompey's favor, of course, proposes another extraordinary command. And here's the story on that. Well, there's a certain pillar of the post-Sulla conservative nobility, a general named Lucullus, and for several years, Lucullus has been chasing old king Mithridates around Asia Minor. This is the same Mithridates that Sulla humbled and defeated, but did not destroy. And Lucullus is the subject of another Plutarch biography that we'll tell soon. Well, this proud and uncompromising man, Lucullus, he's just about finished Mithridates off when he starts to face morale issues and mutiny among his soldiers. They resent his stern discipline. He's not letting them plunder like they thought they should. And in their words, he's being stingy with them. And so in one of the more shocking indignities of the entire decade, Pompey's tribune friend that we mentioned, his name was Manilius, Manilius proposes, and he passes in a plebiscite, a law authorizing that the command of the war with Mithridates be transferred from steady old Lucullus to Rome's golden boy, Pompey. This prospect brings up disturbing possibilities to the mind of a Roman like Crassus. Of course, there was the obvious fact that, well, here was the command against Mithridates again being tossed around as an apple of discord between two of Rome's great men, Thankfully, though, unlike with Sulla and Marius, this time the transfer of power did go over peacefully. But even more disturbing than that, the Eastern Mediterranean was fabled not just for its wealth, but also for its effete, weakling kings and armies. An easy plum for a greedy commander like Pompey to pluck. What if Pompey is victorious, as is very likely to happen? What if he returns from the East with great plunder and the glory of another triumph? How, in that case, would Crassus avoid becoming permanently overshadowed? How could he shore up his position enough to counterbalance that kind of weight? It was time to get to work. Well, as time goes on, the reports start coming back. Pompey is ordering Rome's legions on to ever greater adventures, smashing through Asia, thrashing the barbarians. It's not encouraging. So to respond, Crassus puts all his hope in his powers of building relationships. By this time in his career, Crassus has become a magnet for ambitious and talented young Romans, especially those who, despite their potential, have some sort of need or handicap. He's got the connections, the know-how, and the financial power to back your candidacy. He can offer turnkey political patronage services. And on this point of financial power, it's worth pointing out here that for Romans, the only truly respectable forms of gaining wealth for the nobility were inheriting family land or plundering from war. And Roman senators were by law supposed to keep their hands clean from merchandising and money lending. But there were various ways around these regulations, and they were difficult to enforce anyway. Still, there was a moral stigma attached to a self-made business fortune like Crassus had. But I think one of the ways that Crassus got over it 
was actually by being so obsessed with politics. Many of the greatest wealth builders are able to do this. You have to be talented and make your money. But you and other people who are part of what you're doing have to be able to plausibly say, it's not about the money. And Steve Jobs has a version of this. And John Rockefeller had a version of this. And politics was kind of Crassus's answer to that. It was his higher purpose, the glory of the republic. And by extension, the honor that came from serving the republic. But I think on top of that, this stigma that he definitely had might have actually been part of Crassus's appeal to the young and fast crowd. He was seen as a dangerous man to mess with. And Plutarch remarks that smiling, amiable Crassus got more influence from the fear he inspired than the charm of his friendship. There was one politician, Sicinius, who made a career of quarreling with magistrates and popular leaders like Crassus, and he was asked why he never picked a fight with Crassus. And Sicinius responded, that man has hay in his horns. The Romans used to coil hay around the horn of an ox that gored people to warn passersby to be on their guard. But there's a play on words here. The Latin word for hay, finum, is also the word for interest on a loan. It's a metaphor. You know, hay grows at a slow and steady rate, kind of like your profits from money lending. And so Sicinius was also making a clever jab at one of Rome's great usurers. But he knew not to mess with Crassus because he was dangerous. Now, one of the dangerous young men Crassus drew to himself was someone who had a similar taint as Crassus because he participated a little too zealously in the opportunism of the age of Sulla, Lucius Sergius Catiline, who we mentioned at the beginning. Unlike Crassus with his real estate buying spree, Catiline was more known for bolder acts of violence. For example, it was believed that he murdered his brother, then asked Sulla to add the dead man's name retroactively to the proscription list so that he could avoid facing justice for the crime. But by the time that Crassus got involved with him, Catiline actually seems like a pretty good bet. He's from an old patrician family. He's worked hard to win some respectability in the intervening years. He was a vigorous man. In the words of Sallust, his body could endure hunger, cold, and want of sleep to an incredible degree. His mind was reckless, cunning, adaptable, capable of any form of pretense or concealment. And most interestingly of all, to Crassus, Catiline is stylish and he attracts other stylish and rowdy young men to himself. And you can see the special series that we did on Catiline recently for more details on him. But Catiline's signature political talent was speaking effectively to very different audiences, as that quote from Sallust kind of hints at. He could be a senator's senator among the nobility. He's got the backing of such a bastion of conservatism as Quintus Lutatius Catullus, which is kind of amazing. But Catiline also knows how to speak to the heart of the common man, to feel his frustrations, much like Caesar, much like Crassus. But for all his talent, Catiline was poor, and his prodigal lifestyle made him even more needy for cash. And that's a place where Crassus could definitely help. But at some point, Crassus took on Catiline as a protege, and Catiline managed to get elected praetor, and then he took his customary tour of duty afterward as governor of Africa, where he spent two years performing a customary fleecing of the provincials. And when he returned to Rome, he was immediately put on trial for extortion, and he was blatantly guilty 
But somebody bought the jury off, and Catiline went free. Who knows who that was? But the following year, Catiline runs for consul, and he's running on what you might call a moderate populist platform. Crassus supports his campaign, but he does so in a kind of secretive way, mainly through funding it. Even Catiline's opponent in the consular elections, when he's making speeches, he's trying to publicly discredit Catiline with allegations from his shady past. He doesn't dare speak about Crassus's support openly. He just has to allude to dark money behind Catiline. Crassus preserved plausible deniability. And the man making these speeches, running against Catiline, is the orator Cicero. And Cicero ends up defeating Catiline and winning the consulship for the year 63. This event, though, starts a feud between Cicero and Catiline. Cicero and Catiline start attacking each other more intensely in public speeches. Cicero calls Catiline an adulterer, a fratricide, a gambler. Catiline calls Cicero a provincial, low-born, and whatever the Romans' equivalent of pencil neck is. But here's where things start to get really dicey. The consuls begin their term of office on January 1st, at the beginning of the year, but the elections are held in late summer, and so during Cicero's term of office... Catiline runs again for the consulship for the following year, but then he loses once again. Crassus' investment is starting to look a little bit precarious. What's more, by this time, Catiline, unbeknownst to many of his upstanding backers among the nobility, he's been making promises to the more unsavory elements of society, promises of debt cancellation. And as we've said, this idea of debt cancellation doesn't just appeal to the lower classes, you know, farmers who fell on bad luck, but also to stylish young men living beyond their means, spending money in the hopes of attracting a political following, and to failed politicians, even wealthy nobles who might be asset rich but cash poor. These people could be up to their ears in debt after all the gifts for friends, the lavish meals, the fine horses, the female companions, in other words, the heavy bribery that they hoped would win them office, and it didn't, and they therefore didn't get the opportunity to restore their balance sheets through a lucrative provincial governorship. People like Catiline himself, after his second failed consulship run. Well, when he fails, Catiline launches Plan B, a secret plot to take over the state, to set fire to parts of the city, to assassinate nobles in the chaos that followed, to seize the forum. He even secretly raises an army just a couple of days' march from Rome. And Catiline is hoping, once he gets control of the city, that he can rely on Crassus's support to legitimize his revolution. In Catiline's own eyes, he has the backing of the most powerful man in the city— and what about that debt cancellation? What about his massive debt to Crassus and all the other debt that Crassus owns? Well, Catiline must have figured that he could work out some sort of an arrangement, maybe an exception. Or maybe, as Crassus talked over these very plans of revolution with Catiline, in meetings that nobody would ever be able to prove happened, Crassus decided that the power he could gain by Catiline's plot might be worth the cost of losing the money on his loans. Maybe. But then, how do you make sense of what Crassus did next? Mm -hmm. 
late in the night on October 18th, the consul Cicero gets a knock on his door that rouses him from bed. It's Crassus, pale in the face, and he's with two other distinguished senators, Marcellus and Scipio. Crassus explains to Cicero, an unknown man just delivered a package of letters addressed to various important senators. Crassus only opened the letter addressed to him, but it told of a horrific plot of looming murder and fire, and it warned him to leave the city before it was too late. The letters had addressees, but no named senders. Crassus, of course, came at once to warn the consul of the impending danger to the city, to urge him to investigate, to see if he could find out who was behind this frightening plot. Now, as Crassus certainly knew, Cicero has already been investigating this matter for a long time, but the consul is pleased to have some additional corroborating evidence. So did Crassus then decide that his investment in Catiline was not going to pay off, that Catiline was going to fail in his plot, that it was time for Crassus to cut losses, Remember, he didn't name any names. Well, shortly after this midnight visit, Cicero presents the package of letters to the Senate. The city goes on high alert. And eventually, a few days later, on November 8th, Cicero presents a shocking speech and a thick dossier of evidence, definitively naming Catiline as the mastermind of this revolutionary plot to overthrow the Republic. Catiline flees the city. He goes and joins his army. But secretly... A few conspirators stay behind in the city. They're planning to go through with the plot to start chaos so Catiline can march on the city with his army. Cicero, however, on December 3rd, gets evidence of this too through some conspiracy defectors. And he arrests the remaining ringleaders and he brings them in to answer for themselves in the Senate. The evidence is overwhelming. The conspirators confess. Fire, murder, revolution... At this point, though, another conspirator is brought into the Senate in chains, and he lodges a shocking allegation. He claims that when he was apprehended, he was on his way to deliver a letter to Catiline himself from Crassus. A letter telling Catiline, don't be alarmed by the arrest of the conspirators, but hasten your plans and bring your rebel army against the city. Wow. Imagine that moment, the great Crassus, implicated in a plot to overthrow the Republic. Sallust records what happened next, quote, But when Tarquinius named Crassus a noble of tremendous wealth and extraordinary power, a cry arose that the informer was a liar, and the demand was made for the matter to be voted on by the Senate. Remember, this is in the Senate this is happening. Some raising their voices because they thought the whole thing incredible. Others raising their voices, that is, because it seemed best in such a crisis for so powerful a man to be conciliated rather than provoked, quite a few being under obligation to Crassus as a result of private business relations, even though they believe Tarquinius's allegation to be true, end quote. Wow. So the Senate, they vote and they reject the evidence. And they lock up the man who offered it until he should confess as to who put him up to such a monstrous lie. Crassus doesn't even need to speak up and say a word to defend himself. Now that is power. All of these lower-ranking new entrants to the Roman elite, these new senatorial families that Crassus has been cultivating all these years, Crassus has them stuck in his web of friendships and debts 
and favors. And the web includes many of the top nobles now, too. And on that day, they did all the defending for him. So a letter to Catiline to carry on with the revolutionary plot to march on the city. Was that allegation true? Is it possible that Crassus had masterminded himself into a position in which, if the conspiracy was foiled, he would be recognized as a man who had contributed to the safety of the Republic because he delivered to the consul that packet of anonymous letters warning of the plot. And if the conspiracy succeeded, he would be the man Catiline relied on and partnered with to restore order in the aftermath and therefore remain the most powerful man in Rome. Is it possible? Well, many at the time certainly thought so. But those aren't even all the angles that Crassus has on this event. A few days after these other conspirators are apprehended and confess, the Senate holds a meeting to decide their fate. The death penalty is brought up. Speeches are made for and against. Now, the Senate isn't a court. So technically, they would just be recommending a course of action to the consul, to Cicero, to use his executive authority as he sees fit. And this is a fact that would later come back to haunt Cicero. But all the same, in the moment, the Senate is deciding the fate of the conspirators, and up stands yet another of Crassus's dashing young protégés to speak in favor of withholding the death penalty. And it's time to finally introduce this key character in the story. It's Julius Caesar. Caesar was another talented young man who was kind of damaged goods in the eyes of the post-Sulla Roman noble establishment. The Juliuses were an ancient patrician clan, but they were kind of down on their luck. They lived in a rundown part of town, the Sabura. And Caesar had connections to the populist regime that Sulla had crushed. His aunt was the wife of old general Gaius Marius himself. Marius's memory is, of course, cursed in the eyes of Sulla and the other winners of the Civil War. But before the Civil War broke out, Caesar also, as a very young and precocious man, he married the daughter of Marius's political partner, Cinna. So he's got quite a dissident pedigree. Well, lately Caesar has been making his mark as a populist leader, and he's skilled at courting the masses, and he's not afraid to take risks in the form of borrowing huge sums of money for the purpose of mass electoral bribery. And by the time that Caesar stands up to speak in the Senate, He's just won election to both the praetorship for the following year and to the most prestigious priesthood in Rome, the office of Pontifex Maximus. And to run for these offices, Caesar took on ruinous amounts of debt. Where was he borrowing all this cash? Well, we can only guess. But that's who Caesar is by this point. So in the Senate House on that day, debating over the fate of Catiline's co-conspirators, Caesar speaks in favor of withholding the death penalty, and there are good political reasons for this. Even though the conspirators were manifestly guilty, Catiline himself was very popular, and many Romans saw in the conspirators even a righteous challenge to an unjust and exploitative political system. On top of that, executing Roman citizens without a proper trial is an egregious act, and against custom, even if the act is authorized by the moral authority of the Senate. However, there's another politician, an up-and-coming leader among the conservative bloc, and his name is Cato the Younger. This is the famous 
stoic philosopher politician that we'll cover in his own biography. Well, Cato stands up and argues forcefully for immediate execution. And the Senate ends up voting for Cato's proposal. And Cicero has the conspirators executed. But Crassus himself, on the day of the vote, is conveniently absent on some business or maybe suffering from a diplomatic illness. Early the next spring, a Roman army crushes Catiline's rebel forces in Tuscany. And with that, the conspiracy was over. Now, with Catiline dead, Crassus loses whatever money he had lent to the man. But someone like Cicero had to marvel that Crassus had lost no political capital whatsoever. In fact, he had gained. Not just by appearing cooperative with Cicero, delivering that bundle of letters, but also because Caesar is Crassus's man. And Caesar, by standing up and defending the conspirators' dignity as citizens, even though he was unsuccessful, Caesar took on the mantle of the champion of the people that Catiline was wearing before and abandoned once he died. Now, Crassus and Caesar have already cooperated in some behind-the-scenes activities by this point, but this was their biggest project together yet. And as consul during this conspiracy... Cicero learned many secrets, and many of them he kept. One of them he kept for 20 more years until he died. But before he died, he entrusted a short book to his son with strict instructions to publish it, but only after Cicero was dead. In that book, Cicero said he had hard evidence that both Crassus and Caesar were in on Catiline's schemes. Well, Crassus and Caesar start cooperating more tightly from this point on. For example, when Caesar finishes his year as praetor, as magistrate in Rome, he's planning to leave the city to go out on his tour as governor. But he's behind on his interest payments with his other creditors, and they're clamoring and making all kinds of threats if Caesar leaves the city without paying them. So Crassus steps in, and he pays off all the principal and interest due, and he makes a personal guarantee for the remaining amount which was 830 talents. That's about 20 million sesterces, about three times the value of the entire estate Crassus inherited from his father, just because we're keeping score here. So Crassus, there he is again, making a huge bet on a relatively unproven young politician who still has no military victories to his name. But Crassus can already see Caesar is going to be going places in Roman politics. And Crassus is going to need to recruit all the talent he can for what's next, because the elephant is about to stroll back into the room of Roman politics. Pompey is returning from the east. In 62, Pompey is coming back to Italy after what turned out to be the greatest string of imperial conquest Rome had ever seen up to that point. Not only did Pompey defeat Mithridates, and the old king is now finally dead, but after his victory, Pompey eagerly allowed himself to be drawn into the squabbles of numerous eastern dynasts, and by becoming their mediator first, he effectively became their suzerain. And so through a combination of strong arm and charm, Pompey pushed the limit of Roman influence to the borders of Persia. 
And in the process, among other things, he became the first Roman to defile the temple of Jerusalem. And we'll tell about that in his life. But when Pompey returns, he's going to be returning with fabulous plunder, arrogant, rich veteran soldiers, and relationships with wealthy Eastern client kings who were eager to keep sending him money and gifts as long as he can guarantee that Rome will keep them on their thrones. Pompey is by far the most glorious Roman alive now. And if you could do the math, and a man like Crassus certainly would try to do the math, well, you could make the case that with the money of this new clientele Pompey's able to draw on, it might even be Pompey now who was the richest man in Rome. You might even think he's now going to be the first man in Rome, its greatest citizen, without question. After all, with that kind of money and clout, what's to stop Pompey from basically taking over the place? What's Crassus going to do when he's about to be inferior in both glory and arguably wealth, too? Well, Crassus can see that for all his power and influence, Pompey is actually going to be a very needy man when he returns. Ever since the days of Gaius Marius and Sulla, Roman soldiers are now drawn mostly from the lower classes, from the urban poor in the city of Rome and all over Italy. And it's become custom for Roman generals returning from long foreign campaigns to reward their soldiers with little plots of land to retire on and kind of make gentlemen farmers out of them, raise their station in life a little bit. And so Pompey has made many such promises. But to fulfill those promises, Pompey is going to need political approval, whether from the Senate or the people or both. And what's more, to retain his new royal clientele and all of the income that that implies, as well as the prestige that these complicated political arrangements in the East that he's made have brought him these borders that he's drawn, tax systems, new elites that he's installed in place. Pompey's going to need the Senate's approval for all of that because the Senate is the arbiter of foreign policy, according to the Roman Constitution. These are very serious needs, and Pompey might not realize it, but he's going to need Crassus's help to get these done. Crassus is going to make sure of that. So what does Crassus do to get ready? Well, first of all, he sets the stage with a great stunt. When report goes out that Pompey has at last set sail for Italy with his army, Crassus theatrically flees the city in terror with his sons. I think it's pretty clearly feigned terror. He's implying that Pompey is like Sulla, that he's someone willing to use the leverage of his army to override the Republican constitution and force his will at Rome like a dictator. Or worse, Pompey's like one of these unaccountable tyrant dynasts of the eastern regions that he's just spent so much time chumming with. Well, this is a very tricky move, and Pompey has to come up with something to counter, and so he counters by ostentatiously disbanding his army, and he sends them all home right as soon as he lands, immediately. And all of these soldiers go back to their homes all over Italy, and Pompey journeys to Rome unarmed. He's just joined by a few friends. It's as if he's just returning from some unremarkable private citizen sojourn abroad. And on the one hand, this neutralizes Crassus's move, makes Pompey look good. But he's also given up his most important political leverage by far, a potential mob of angry soldiers. And getting him to do that cost Crassus very little. So then Crassus comes back and he starts cementing his ties with all of the optimates in the Senate. 
and he can do that because he's no populist. He's no demagogue. You know, he might have some friends, but you know, you can't control your friends, what they do and their political careers. And so Crassus has pretty good credentials still. Well, he marries his son off to the daughter of a Metellus. The Metelli, of course, are one of Rome's top political families and uh, bastions of conservatism. And this particular Metellus that he marries his son off to the daughter of had a grudge against Pompey for insulting him several years earlier. And Pompey, in fact, for all that he courted the nobles and craved their admiration, he was always inviting them to be prestigious officers in his campaigns, you know. Still, he made a handful of very powerful enemies among them on his rise, and that's probably inevitable. But another one of these nobles with a virulent grudge against Pompey is Lucullus, the man that Pompey outraged by stealing his command of the war against Mithridates, And then there's another proud noble to be reckoned with, and that's the rising star among the Optimates, Cato the Younger, that we just met earlier. Now, Cato is barely into his 30s, but he's already made a reputation for himself as a disciplinarian, as a champion of the old ways, especially the Senate's rights, and he's therefore seen as a guardian of the traditions of the Republican order. So any commander who starts to act like he's more than a citizen expecting the state to grant easy favors to his soldiers without due process, well, he's going to run afoul of Cato. Pompey knows this, and he actually admires Cato. He even tries to form a marriage alliance with Cato, but Cato blows him off with little more than an eye roll. And you wonder if Crassus might have given his former staff officer Cato a little nudge in the right direction on that question. Who knows? But before proposing this marriage to Cato, Pompey made the mistake of dishonoring the Metelli clan by divorcing his wife, who was the sister of two very prominent Metelluses. And the personal and the political in in Rome with all of these great families, they overlap considerably. I think Crassus has to have wondered here about Pompey's decisions You know, first, Pompey shames one of the proudest, most blustering boss families among the nobility, and then he exposes himself to Cato's insatiable thirst for insulting the proud. It's almost as if all that time among the god kings of the East has made Pompey forget that at Rome, he's still just a man. And so partly through Crassus' behind-the-scenes work, partly through Pompey's own blundering, the pieces are all now in place. Pompey tries to pass a bill, a block ratification of all of his eastern arrangements in the Senate, all on a single bill. But then Lucullus and Cato rise up and propose that, no, this is unprecedented. These are our new allies and subjects that we're dealing with here. The Senate needs time to examine and to give due consideration to each point of the eastern settlement and vote on every piece independently. They found some ancient precedent to make their case on, I'm sure. Well then, Crassus rises to express his agreement in the manner of a moderate, simply taking care that the Republic's due processes be respected. Crassus is just so tricky, and that, of course, ruined Pompey's day. So Pompey's eastern conquest omnibus bill fails. 
He's now looking at the prospect of his most determined opponents dissecting every single diplomatic decision that he's made over the past four years in embarrassing public debate. It's going to take forever. They're going to make sure that as little as possible gets ratified and that the process never ends. And meanwhile, Cato scoffs at Pompey's victory over Mithridates as a war against women. There's that classic Roman disdain for Easterners and their corrupting luxury. Now a younger Pompey might at this point have recruited a radical tribune of the plebs to bypass the Senate and get over this optimate obstructionism, to take a plebiscite of the people. But Pompey has spent the better part of a decade trying to win over the aristocracy and distance himself from his populist days. He's worked so hard to craft this serene persona of benevolent majesty. The idea of turning to rabble-rousing now is a red line and... Crossing it would permanently collapse his support among the great families. And so Pompey spins into a depression. And one day Cicero visited Pompey during these hard times and he found the conqueror of Asia sitting alone in a room in his vast mansion, quietly staring at his purple triumphal toga in crestfallen disbelief over his civic defeats, realizing maybe at last the difference between glory and power. So you wonder what kind of concessions Crassus is thinking that he can extract from Pompey. But Crassus has faced a couple of setbacks himself in the Senate lately. The Senate's private contractors for taxes, these are the equestrian businessmen, they're trying to renegotiate their contracts after finding that the East was ravaged and drained of its wealth far more severely than they anticipated. And Crassus speaks in favor of their reasonable request in the Senate. In all likelihood, he was helping the equestrians finance their operation, and he had a good bit of money at stake. But there were principles on the line as well. And Crassus is joined in advocating this cause by such a distinguished moderate as Cicero. Cicero himself, originally an equestrian, he's always eager to keep the equestrians in a tight partnership with the senatorial nobles to keep them from drifting towards populism as they're tempted to do. But then, Cato the Younger friend of both of them, and yet, once again, a man never to be mistaken for a respecter of persons. He rails and he filibusters and he quashes the taxman relief deal. Then that's politics for you. But it's starting to seem, though, that young Cato may be overplaying his hand, and he's about to learn the lesson of making too many powerful enemies at the same time. Now, Crassus's challenges in Roman politics at this time were real, but relatively modest in comparison with poor Pompey's. But in 59 BC, it's Julius Caesar who comes up with a solution. He approaches both Crassus and Pompey with a deal that promises to put away all of their troubles with Senate obstructionism for a long time. It's come to be known as the Triumvirate. The famous triumvirate, from the Latin for three men, the deal was not called that in its day. It was called other less nice things, like three-headed monster. And for all of the truly crassen trickiness of this agreement, as far as we can tell, it was actually Caesar's idea. And here's what happened. Well, in the year 60, Caesar returns to Rome from a very successful tour of duty as governor of Spain, 
He cleared the province of bandits and lawlessness. He decided it was time to run for consul, and he independently sought the support of the two most influential men of his day, Crassus and Pompey, independently. And they both offered it. And Caesar wins. But Cato is determined to oppose him. And he manages to get a good friend of his elected as Caesar's co-consul to be a thorn in his side. It's a very well-established hater of Caesar, actually, a guy named Bibulus, which is kind of funny because his name means tippler. But Bibulus means business, and he can make Caesar's life miserable as co-consul. So in response, Caesar warms up his extraordinary powers of persuasion, and he calls a very secret meeting. He invites Crassus and Pompey, these arch-rivals, to cooperate with each other, like they once did long ago in their first consulship. He calls on them to put away their differences so that they can break through the optimate brick wall of Cato and friends for the good of the Republic, for the soldiers, for the equestrians, for Rome. And Caesar, of course, is consul. You know, he can help with the paperwork and such things. I think to appreciate Caesar's genius, you have to remember here that this is not the union of the three most powerful men in Rome. It's a union of the two most powerful men in Rome, and then Caesar. Caesar is but a flea on the rump of these two elephants in Roman politics right now. But Caesar saw that despite the Senate's obstructionism, actually each man's biggest obstacle to getting what they wanted was the other great man. Both Pompey and Crassus would do anything to keep the other from getting the upper hand. And so by brokering this deal, Caesar does them both this huge favor. They can see it too. And he also lays the foundation for his own greatness. And we'll discuss that when we get to his biography. And the three have to be very secretive at first. Imagine if in the early 1990s, Michael Dell persuaded Bill Gates and Steve Jobs to agree to, say, a price-fixing scheme for personal computers and software, or some other unknown and more nefarious agenda giant tech companies deciding to coordinate forces like that. Thank God this sort of thing would never happen in a democracy, of course. But this was the kind of threat that the triumvirate would represent in the eyes of respectable establishment men like Cato. And later Romans, looking back, dug up stories of portents at the beginning of the year, days-long thunderstorms, floods and fire from heaven, as if the gods were warning the Romans of impending doom to the Republic. But it all seemed relatively innocuous at first, to men like Crassus and Pompey at least. Backroom deals and reachings across the aisle between rival Senate magnates. This is nothing new in Republican politics. It's not as if they were proposing any formal dictatorship of three men. It was just an ad hoc agreement to collaborate for this one year of Caesar's consulship. And for a few months, they kept it under wraps pretty well. But one day, there's this incredible moment where they decide it is time to come out into the open at last. Here's what happens. To begin, as consul, Caesar presents the Senate with a land bill lovingly designed to finally, properly honor Pompey's loyal veterans for their service to the Republic. And he's playing the role here of the good old-fashioned consensus-building Roman statesman seeking the Senate's counsel and approval for a law. Of course, now that the tribunate has been restored, it's not technically a requirement for the law to be valid to do this, but Caesar's no demagogue. 
It was a well-crafted, moderate law. Even Cicero had to admit it was not an entirely unreasonable proposal. But Cato rails against the law, and he filibusters, and he makes a scene, even though he doesn't have any substantive complaints about the law. It's just contrary to Cato's definition of whatever is well-precedented for Rome. And Cato is confident at this point that he's going to block Caesar. Caesar, after all, is advocating for Pompey's interests. And the one iron rule, nay, golden rule, of Roman politics that Cato knows and can count on from experience over the last decade is that wherever Pompey has a chance to raise his head, Crassus will be standing by to gently shove it back down, whether it's in the Senate or in the popular assembly or somewhere else. Well, at this point, the motion has failed in the Senate, and Caesar gave the Senate a chance, didn't he? Next, he announces that for the sake of their country's servicemen, he is going to go directly to the People's Assembly to overcome the gridlocked dysfunction of partisan politics. He's calling a plebiscite. He's shifting to the style of his uncle Marius and the Gracchi brothers before him and so many other rabble-rousing revolutionary innovators, as Cato would be quick to point out. Well, Caesar, of course, easily procures a willing tribune to actually propose the law, and when the day comes to put the vote before the people, Caesar stands up on the rostra, and he starts preaching the law's benefits before the populace in the forum. And the people cheer. And then Caesar calls the glorious conqueror, Pompey the Great, up onto the rostra. More cheers. At this point, it might be noticed that the city has recently become filled with rustic-looking tough guys, i.e. Pompey's veteran soldiers, out from their impoverished retirement from all over Italy. Not that they have any violent aims in mind, of course. They're simply just showing up to vote, hoping to finally remove the disgrace from their heads. Well, having approached the podium, Pompey starts speaking, and the forum's buildings rock on their foundations as his soldiers punctuate every fine point of his speech with the disciplined shout of a well-trained army. Cato, at this point, is maybe expecting some kind of counter-demonstration from some of Crassus's clients, some opposing speeches, or maybe a veto motion by another member of the College of the Tribunes. The other tribunes can do that. But then, to the horror of Cato and Bibulus and all the optimates watching the scene, out from the shadows onto the rostra, Caesar calls the puppet master himself. And there stands Crassus, waving and smiling. He's here to speak about the glory of the Republic's hard-won victories over her powerful eastern enemies. He's here to praise her champion conqueror, Pompey the Great. Wow. And, of course, he's here to support our troops. And that is the moment Cato realizes this is his year to be a loser. When it's time to take the actual vote, Cato and Bibulus scramble. They try anything. They put their hopes in the arcane religious powers that the ancient Roman constitution granted to consuls. They shove their way up to the front of the crowd, and Bibulus cries out a religious objection to the voting. He claims there are ill omens in the skies, and he hears a peal of thunder off in the distance. This was one of the rites of the consuls. 
to interrupt the proceedings with these kinds of religious objections, Caesar responds by pretending he doesn't hear. And on cue, some rowdy thugs who look a lot like they might be Pompey's soldiers grab and beat up Bibulus's consular bodyguards, the lictors. And then someone empties a bucket of excrement onto Bibulus's own head. The conservative obstructionists are laughed out of the voting grounds, and the law passes. And to carry out the veteran land distributions, commissioners would be needed, men in charge of actually making the decisions of how to dole out the land. And most importantly, these men inevitably would find themselves bestowing innumerable favors on whatever soldiers promised them loyalty or money or whatever else was necessary in order to secure the best plots of land for their fledgling families. And for this job, the law named who else but Pompey and Crassus. That event really encapsulates the mood of the entire year of Caesar's consulship and the triumvirate. Cassius Dio, an ancient source writing a couple of centuries later, he looked back on Crassus's decision to join this triumvirate, and he offered an interesting analysis. He says, Crassus could already see that Caesar was going to rise to great heights, and that's got to be right. I mean, he doesn't have a crystal ball, just a really well-trained eye for talent. And he could see that he wanted to eventually set Caesar and Pompey in opposition to each other to make sure that neither of them could get the upper hand. And I'll quote the rest of the passage from Cassius Dio here. Quote, For without supporting in all respects either the cause of the populace or that of the Senate, Crassus did everything to advance his own power, Accordingly, he paid court to both alike and avoided enmity with either, promoting in turn whatever measures pleased either one to such an extent, and this is the key, as was likely to give him the credit for everything that went to the liking of one or the other without any share in the more unpleasant issues. End quote. And this sums it up well because on the one hand, by the end of the year, the three men got what they wanted at the beginning. Pompey got his land and eastern settlement bills. Crassus got his equestrian tax contract readjusted. And Caesar got a very promising post-office provincial governorship in the wild borderlands of Gaul. The Senate had been trying to deny him any prestigious governorship, but he got that done. On the other hand, there was also a great deal of unpleasantness involved in crushing the Senate's prestige under the wheels of progress or if you will, dumping a bucket of crap all over the conservative party's antiquated constitutional principles. It was also unpleasant because Cato and Bibulus, it turned out, were very skilled at being losers. In many public demonstrations, they're taking on the mantle of martyrs for the Republic's dignity. I think we have to imagine Tricky Crassus would foresee that the backlash, both among the nobility and even among the common citizens of Rome, would mostly fall on Pompey's head. Great hatred is often born first as great love. Pompey was loved, while Crassus was merely liked. And to be liked in a relationship ultimately grounded on common advantage and common interests well, that can be a much more stable form of control than the fleeting passion of admiration. Pompey had his personal charisma and his glory as a conqueror, 
And based on that, he courted the fickle cheers of the crowd and befriended pompous and volatile nobles whose loyalty was above all to their own family dynasties. If he angered either of these, they could turn on him and quickly erode his support. And anger them he did. Cicero's letters from this time repeat the same panicked refrain, his frustration at the three men's continued disregard for the Senate, and the sense of betrayal that he felt from his patron Pompey. Pompey, he said, was the man everyone blamed the most for letting this unconstitutional Troika dominate Rome and divide its spoils among themselves. He says, Pompey's name is mud in everybody's mouth in one of his letters. And one day after seeing this great and once popular conqueror try to address an assembly over a chorus of boos, Cicero confided to a friend, Ugh, what a sight. Only Crassus could enjoy it. And it all could have been foreseen. Because while Pompey wielded the weighty honor of his big name like a club, Crassus instead was focusing on tightening his grasp on the actual strings of power. And because he didn't merely impress people, but controlled them, he could work through them more effectively and hide his agency wherever it suited him. He controlled the minor elites, the businessmen, the patronage network that counted on him for their income, their financing, their political connections. And through them, he controlled Rome, like Robert Moses once controlled all New York City and state from his Triborough Bridge Authority office on Randall's Island. And if Cato and the conservatives claimed that they were trying to stabilize the Republic's consensus-building traditions by preventing the great from becoming too great, by preventing any victorious general from throwing his weight around and becoming a tyrant again like a Marius or a Sulla, well, if you pressed Crassus, could he not say that it was he himself, after all, who was the more effective check on the overweening pride of that would-be Eastern dynast, Pompey. Give the general the dues of his conquest, but make sure he never forgets. He is but a man. Well, maybe Crassus used that kind of reasoning to calm his large block of supporters in the Senate when their ears got a little overfilled with Cato's plaintive warnings of doom for the Republic. But at 55 years old, I think Crassus could look at Rome in justified confidence that he was its most powerful citizen. Still, there was no denying he was not the Republic's most glorious citizen. And what can you add to a masterpiece like the Marcus Licinius Crassus political machine? Pompey had celebrated numerous triumphs, and as Caesar was headed off early the following year to an unprecedented five-year-long proconsular command in Gaul that the triumvirate had helped him secure, maybe Crassus stopped to reflect back on that beautiful day more than 30 years ago when he rode in the chariot through the streets of Rome celebrating his father's victory over the barbarians. It was Crassus, too, not capable of that sort of achievement? Well, let's save that story for the finale in part three, coming next. It's been a long episode and we've seen many lessons as we've gone on, but I just want to share one thing that really stuck out to me as I made this pass over Crassus. 
Do you get the sense that for Crassus, Roman politics is a little bit of a game? A very serious game, of course, and he plays it with all the intensity of a Kobe Bryant. It's a deadly game, even, as we saw with Catiline. But somehow Crassus plays it with a kind of lightness and charm and gamesmanship, like when he's feigning panic and leaving the city when Pompey's coming back to town after his eastern conquests. And there's a moment that we didn't cover where, in a letter, Cicero recounts how right after Pompey's return, Crassus stood up in the Senate and he praised Cicero's work as consul to the skies, you know, his Catalinarian victory over the conspirators. And he was talking about how every time he looks on his wife and kids, he thinks, ah, I owe this safety to the consul Cicero, savior of the Republic. Which is really funny when you consider his probable involvement in that conspiracy. But anyway, Cicero was really flattered. He said, Pompey was visibly annoyed. Crassus was praising Cicero more than he praised Pompey. It kind of roiled Pompey. And, you know, Cicero, he's charmed, but he could even kind of tell what Crassus was doing. You know, even though he's charmed, he could see, I think, Crassus is driving just a little wedge between them, just a tiny little shim to separate them. You know, this is part of this whole campaign to get closer to the Optimates and the nobles when Pompey returns. But it's that kind of thing that gives you this sense that I think Crassus really loved his job. He had fun with it. And many people, including Plutarch, they talk about Crassus as if he had no loyalty, as if he was duplicitous and only out for himself. But I think he just had a very clear understanding of what his job was. And it wasn't to pick some party and dig his heels in on either side of any ideological divide. It was to keep playing the game to the pinnacle of his powers as long as he could. And if you ended up on the same team as him for some reason, he'd hustle with you harder than anyone. And if, on the other hand, you were competing against him for the championship, well, he'd do everything he could to make sure you'd lose. Teams change from season to season. It's just the nature of the game. I think so many great businessmen and entrepreneurs have that attitude too, and politicians, obviously. Your competitor might be your partner one day, or your mentor, or your employee. So if you want to be like Crassus, don't take it so seriously. It'll be easier to play harder if you don't have to also struggle with anxiety and resentment on top of everything else that makes your life hard. Think of it as a form of moderation, like Crassus would have. That's all for now. If you liked this, leave us a good review. Sign up for our newsletter at ancientlifecoach.com. Tell a friend. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.